Hello and welcome to podcast number seven in our Brainland series. I'm Stephen Brown and I wrote the music for the opera Brainland. When I used to have a day job, I was a neuropsychiatrist specialising in epilepsy, but I always had a side hustle as a musician. A much-valued colleague then and now was Raymond Tallis. Then I knew him as a professor of geriatric medicine with a special interest in epilepsy, who also seemed to have a parallel career as a philosopher, and these days we all know him as a philosopher, poet, novelist and cultural critic. And he's been described as one of the top living polymaths in the world. So, in order to tempt Ray to join me in making this podcast, I followed a suggestion from Ken Barrett and set one of Ray's poems to music. What you just heard was two lines from Shakespeare's Sonnet 81. Or shall I live your epitaph to make, or you survive when I in earth am rotten? Which Ray uses as an epigraph to the poem, which is called Metasonnet to the Dark Lady. He's promised to read this in full at the end of the podcast. I've called this episode Joyful Astonishment and the Philosophy of Optimism. Um, I have to say, after having a chat with Ray for uh, the time to make this podcast, I felt very joyful and optimistic, um, and I hope that you do too. Now, Ray, when you were a teenager, what did you think you were going to be doing with the rest of your life? I can remember vividly deciding I was going to be a biochemist. Mm. Um, I was a teenager in the early 60s, and it's just before Crick and Watson got the Nobel Prize for you know, discovering the structure of DNA, and it looks we're on the verge of explaining life. Mm. So it looked like a sort of uh, quite a sort of hot button to press, really. So I uh, was planning to do biochemistry, and then I met the mother of one of my school friends, who was a married to a doctor and said, well, look, if you really want to be a biochemist, you ought to be a clinical biochemist. And if you want to be a clinical biochemist, you should do medicine first. Mm. So I started off doing medicine. But in the first part of medicine, you had to do some biochemistry. And I discovered how molecules and I were not actually a great partnership. <laughs> when we used to write up our experiments, um, uh, often the line would be, at this stage, gravitational factors had to be taken into account. In other words, a test tube would fall into the floor. And actually, molecules turned out not to be terribly interesting, even though one of our teachers at Oxford was Sir Hans Krebs, but oh. nonetheless. <laughs> so I thought I'd deal with creatures who are, you know, less, less important than molecules and um, decide to become a doctor and look after people rather than molecules. So I, I, I got to, if you like, to medicine through via biochemistry. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. But did you at that stage ever see yourself as a potential philosopher or novelist or poet as well? I had quite a few adolescent crises. I can remember the standard philosophical ones like, am I, do I really have any free will or am I just basically oh. a drop of the stream? And particularly a very strong ones, a sense of unreality. Nowadays, if I'd been referred to myself, I would have been wondering whether I was having complex partial seizures. But actually, I did have this strange feeling of the world being unreal and that perhaps, you know, um, we may be in the grip of a massive illusion. And it wasn't long before I discovered these were sort of quite respectable issues that were discussed by philosophers. So I read, started reading philosophy in my late teens. First philosophy book I read was Appearance and Reality by F.H. Bradley. And I got hooked 
and I started keeping a notebook because I decided that the universe needed to know what I thought about it. And so I, uh, and since then, I've kept loads and loads of notebooks and um, out of them eventually emerged books, although it took 25, 30 years for that to happen. Yeah. I heard a rumour that you wrote novels as well when you were younger. I did. I even published a novel um, called Absence, which is set in a hospital uh, not far from Liverpool, which will not shall remain nameless. Uh, I wrote lots of short stories as well, but less successful uh, in getting them published. Um, but I don't think the exercise is pointless. I mean, I've got uh, an awful lot of unpublished stuff, although I've published loads of books. The unpublished uh, is much bigger. I mean, the manuscripts that are turning to peat in the loft, you know, warping the RSJs, are pretty enormous. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm afraid uh, the the fiction is very much for the archive, for, you know, for the um, the scholars of the 28th century to pour over. And <laughs> well, then somebody will get a PhD or two out of it, I'm sure. And, and uh, well, God help them. Legacy. <laughs> I want to I want my ashes to apologise to them in advance. Yes. <laughs> Can I just bring in poetry here as well? When did you start writing yeah. poetry? Again, in the middle 60s. And um, it was the first stuff I got published. Um, I got the first non-medical thing I got published at the beginning of the 80s, after 15 years of writing. And then the first book I published was a volume of verse in, in 1985 called Between the Zones. Gosh. And um, by a very good publisher, Iron Press. Now, these days, I mean, since your highly distinguished medical and scientific career, you are, you are known as a philosopher and sort of cultural critic, I suppose. That's fair, isn't it, to say that? Um, well, it's very nice to say people that. People who might it's... be listening to this are, you know, mm -hmm. some medical audience, some lay people. Or something. But in, in terms of what, what you do, and uh, how would you define the term philosophy? I think it's, it is an attempt to capture in the most unprejudiced way the sum total of things. That's the most ambitious, that sort of metaphysics, ontology, and so on. But it's also an attempt to see where we fit into the universe and an attempt to see what kind of creatures we are. And I can tell you that I've failed on all three, as has everybody else. But nonetheless, the journey is worth it. I was going to uh, say, it's the journey. Yes. Exactly. What you do it for. Right. I think what you do it for, yes. I mean, I've often thought it, if philosophy was, as it were, measured uh, by how it, it the, the rate at which it cleared up problems, it would be like in, in special measures by now, because it doesn't um, clear up problems. But what it does is it increases the wattage of one's consciousness, and it generates the most wonderful dialogue between human beings. Sometimes it's academic, sometimes it's absolutely, you know, it, drowning in a bog of footnotes. But on the whole, there is philosophy is probably the most exciting way of engaging with other people's minds. Yeah. How you defined it there, it seems to me, would include all of scientific endeavour as well. Is that fair? That's a really good question. And so lurking in the background is the thought that uh, perhaps in many ways, science is either a rival to philosophy or worse still, the advances in science have made most philosophy, particularly the philosophy of what kinds of things there are, ontology, or the philosophy of space and time, metaphysics, 
it's made that kind of uh, philosophy um, redundant. Well, actually, I don't think that's the case. I mean, for many years, physicists, for example, were particularly contemptuous of philosophers. I think uh, Steven Weinberg said that um, basically the only contribution that physics, that philosophers could make to physics is to clear up the mistakes that other philosophers made in relation to physics. And uh, Richard Feynman said, you know, physics needs philosophy just like birds need ornithologists, i.e. not at all. But actually, uh, increasingly numbers of physicists are getting into philosophy for the very reason that uh, physics is in a terrible mess. If you want to see a real metaphysical mess, you look at quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics now, and I've obviously read a lot about that because um, it, it is a serious rival potentially uh, to um, metaphysical and ontological philosophy. And if you look at um, quantum mechanics, it is in a real mess philosophically. People do not know how to interpret what they find. Doesn't in any way detract from the fact it's been incredibly useful something like 70% of the technology we use present is the child of quantum mechanics. Mm. And when it comes to making predictions, when it comes to manipulating things, when it comes to applications uh, in gadgets and so on, thank you, quantum mechanics. Thank you for making the world safer. Thank you for increasing my life expectancy. The list is endless. Thank you for keeping me warm. But the fact remains is metaphysically, it is a total, complete mess. People don't know what to make of the Schrodinger wave equation. They don't know what to make of the notion of probability, which is so central to quantum mechanics. They don't know whether electrons are real things or just theoretical constructs. The story goes on. So this is where I think there is a really good case for uh, cooperation between philosophers and um, physicists, physics standing for science at its most basic level, and biologists as well. Which is not to say that the role of the um, philosopher is just as a sort of humble gar undergardener to clean the way to scientific truth, as it were. Uh, it's much more than that. I think physics, or indeed the basic fundamental sciences and philosophy, should be equal partners. Yeah, this chimes in with your very early feelings when you were a teenager, surely, about the nature of reality. The whole question of what is reality, um, is it a question about the nature of what's out there? Is it a question of the nature of our interaction with what is out there? Is it a question of, as it were, our mode of being as conscious human beings? So there's a meta question about the nature of reality, which is, what is the question? And that's one of the things that philosophers often do very well. There's a marvellous story about um, Gertrude Stein at the end of her life. She said, you probably heard it, don't you have heard it? But she said, you know, what is the answer? And there was silence. She said, OK, what's the question? And it seems to me philosophy is very good at saying, what's the question? Yes. And a lot of tidying up um, that can come from that kind of inquiry needs to be done in relation to physics. Can we move on a bit from uh, talking about philosophy for a second? Because I also wanted to talk to you about art. Yes. And, you know, as someone who's written short stories and novels and poetry and so on, you are, you could be you know, you're an artist so what, what would you understand by the term art but it's always meant different things at different times first of all there are many arts and any word that encompasses ceramics music poetry um performance art etc is obviously going to be a rather baggy term but perhaps there is something that they have in common which i've found 
from my own experience, most clear in music. And I hasten to add that I cannot read a word of music, I cannot play a note of music, I cannot write in music, but music to me is the most important art. It's one of the most important parts of my life, being a recipient of music. And it, it is an attempt to deal with the fact that we are not able to arrive in our consciousness. We're always on the way, always moving. So even as we're fulfilling some dream, some aim, basically it eludes us. And it's because of the intrinsically dynamic nature of consciousness. Now, when it comes to music, um, the journeying and the arrival are not separate. So the beginning of a symphony isn't just the beginning of a symphony and you sit there listening to it and to find out what happens at the end and so on and so forth. It most importantly is something that comes together and is present and co-present, its beginning and its end um, at any given time. There's also within music something Roger Scruton talked about. I don't know whether you know Roger's writings about music, but he talked about the way notes are connected. And here's me now talking to an expert like yourself. But there is a kind of delicious necessity linking a succession of notes. It's what he calls a virtual causality. So in a way, art, as expressed in music anyway, is an endeavour to dismount from the intrinsic hollowness of the present tense by making the present and the future be co-present. That's how it, music is for me, particularly music one's familiar with. The hunger for art is a unique human hunger. It's the hunger of a self-conscious subject extended in time that wants, as it were, to have a temporal depth without being dissipated through having that temporal depth. It does apply to some extent, to, to a lesser extent, and an important extent, to literary art. I mean, if you think about a novel, of course, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. But the end and the middle and the beginning, they are all connected. And what you have at the end isn't just a point of arrival, it gathers up the journey. Uh, it's important, in this case, not to read works of literature once. Um, Gide said, I write to be reread. And that's because it's very important as it were, not just simply getting to the end of a novel or uh, even of a short story, but actually having it as a whole together in the way we wouldn't have our life as a whole together. Um, so when, when, when you reread something, the first time you may read it to find out what happens, the second time you reread it, knowing what happens, to see how it hangs together and to look at the quality of the presentation of the happening. There, there is a view that music is... is... It's a form of language, yeah, and and that is all you need to know. And and uh, if you're performing, you're actually telling a story, or communicating, uh, and it might be an abstract story. It's not something that could be put into words, because if it was put into words, then you you would be putting it into words, you know, unless you're singing it, um, and you're taking people on a journey when you do that. And I think you did allude to that a bit when you were um, when you were saying something earlier on. Um, and certainly you know, when I'm conducting, I was thinking, what journey are we taking the audience on? How are we going to, you know, get their interest? Well, this bit needs to be brought out in that particular way so that they know that there's this balance, this story that we're telling them, that they can construct it in the particular way. And that's the difference between good and bad, good and less good performances, I suppose. And why two performances of the same work can be so different, even yes. though they're the same work and the same notes played in the same order. Absolutely. But it's not just a journey. That's the wonderful thing. And it is a journey, but a journey plus. When you reach the mm. end of the journey, 
you're not just at the end of the symphony. You know, and, and when you're at the beginning of the symphony, particularly one, someone like your good self who will know it inside out or a quartet or whatever, um, you're at the beginning and the middle and the end. And that's yes, the most important yes. thing. So this kind of deficit in the present tense where you're always dynamically running away from yourself when you can never arrive, you're always journeying. I think that's our art saves us from that. Musical art yes. in particular, um, but literary art to a degree. Poetry is interesting. I mean, um, someone once said to Goethe, you know, you're a great thinker. Why do you waste your time writing occasional poetry, you know, for somebody's wedding or the opening of a church or whatever? Yes. He said, well, there's no such thing as genuinely occasional poetry. If you write a poem that's any good, even if it's about a blackbird song, it cuts to the heart of creation. And I think the dream of poetry is that you, through a particular um, that you can access things more generally and you don't sort of unpack them explicitly as you inevitably do in philosophy and to some, some extent in a story, in, in fiction. Uh, I'm thinking now about lyrical poetry as opposed to narrative poetry, which, of course, is closer <laughs> to fiction than it is to lyrical poetry. I think we ought to just move on to talk about medicine a bit more because now we've yes, we've talked course, about yeah. you know, science and art and philosophy and so on. Um, when when I was a medical student, uh, I kind of picked up on a point of view that appealed to me a lot that medicine requires not only science but also art yeah. and the good practice of medicine and and it's a craft as well yeah. and that these things are all quite important. And there is a lot of um, emphasis now just on the if you like, on, on the science bit and the craft, yeah. obviously. Um, but, you know, in the end, you have to you have to use those uh, as ways of dealing with an individual person that is your patient that you're dealing with who might not quite fit into all the things that you were taught before and your sense of all the algorithms mm -hmm. that you were given that you had to learn and you blindingly have to follow or you get sued and so on. And uh, I don't know if you have any views on that. I, I think you perhaps don't pay enough attention to that and I wonder if it would be helpful if we put a bit more humanities into the medical curriculum. Yes I mean there are areas where it's okay to be a very good technician. Uh, my wife had a total knee replacement and the uh, surgeon was a brilliant technician uh, but the story around the knee was probably of little interest uh, to him mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know our communication was very much to the point you and I have been involved in managing people with epilepsy, and there the story is totally different, it seems mm. to me. I mean, what really matters, the story really does matter. You know, the fact that the person had the seizure the day before her daughter's wedding yes. is probably at least as important as the fact it's yes. complex seizures versus some other seizures. Yes. And also balancing um, the need to stop seizures happening from not zonking the person out with anti-epileptic drugs. You know, what matters most? Uh, and all of that, you can only understand, it seems to me, if you dig deeper into the story of the person. So if, if I've got someone who's removing a wart from the back of my hand, fine, technician, please, good stitching, and you're not interested in the wart and, you know, not interested in anything beyond that wart. Sorry, you're interested in the wart, but nothing beyond beyond that. Um, when it comes to much medical treatment, indeed, the decision, surgical decisions, um, often then I think... Um, 
the person's story, the narrative matters at least as much as your obviously practical competence in making a diagnosis and acting upon it. This this chimes with um, uh, David Taylor's, uh, uh, to our colleague David Taylor's view about yes. disease, illness and predicament, doesn't it? You know, that uh, people come to you with a predicament. I, I pass out and I wet myself in public and this is absolutely terrible. And this is actually an illness called, I don't know, temporal lobe epilepsy, say. Um, and that's a disease called mesial temporal sclerosis or something. And and the doctors focus on the disease, but the person wants help with the predicament. And you've got to make sure that you tie these things up when you're trying to help them and, and put them into one package that makes sense to them. I wish I'd carried that word predicament throughout my medical career, because that really captures the kind of thing you should be addressing of which the illness is a part, mm. but how it fits into somebody's life yeah, yeah, is so important and therefore influences how you speak to them, what you elicit from them about what's worrying them, yeah. which may seem irrelevant, but actually is totally relevant to them and therefore it's relevant. Yes, but then, you know, you've got to be good at all these things. Um, I remember uh, one another colleague of ours who I won't mention by name without his permission here, he's a professor of general practice somewhere, and uh, he, he in private said to me, he was a bit worried because he thought uh, in final MB exams, medical students, you could become a doctor without ever having diagnosed anything correctly because you get <laughs> marks for being nice to the patient and saying hello and introducing yourself and listening to them and talking to them about how they're feeling and all that sort of thing. And if at the end you get totally the wrong diagnosis, well, that only counts for about 10% of the total marks. So it didn't matter. Well, that's a good example where you need a corrective to a corrective. Yes. You? Yes. In many ways, you're trying to correct the fact that people are just focusing on the disease. You know, by the way, I am not yeah. just a kidney. I'm a person. But then actually, it's quite good to get the kidney right as well. And, Absolutely. Uh, yes. No, I think yeah. maybe uh, as grumpy old men, we can see that this is um, uh, something that perhaps needs sorting a bit. But um, I'm sure people will. And, and that's the nature of, of endeavour, isn't it, really? We move from one thing to another and, you know, from left to right wing governments from whatever and, and eventually you know hopefully there's some middle ground that is going to be correct and so on i think that's right yeah. i mean we correct something that's wrong and then we have to we overcorrect yeah. Yeah. yeah i won't mention hegel there his kid brother billy felt the same thing by the way I wanted to to talk about uh, philosophical investigation and artistic creativity might overlap because again that's something that you would be with you know as, as a writer but also a philosopher and uh, how do you what's the difference between philosophical investigation and artistic creativity do you think there's a difference I mean for the greater part of a philosophical inquiry you are following a rather narrow path um, setting out initial propositions drawing their consequences, uh, unpacking a conclusion and so on, with lots and lots of footnotes to make sure you've uh, name-checked those who are working in the same field. But actually, good philosophy is on top of that, is intuitive. I mean, I, the, the, I mean, the book I'm just writing at the moment, I said it's really rather like trying to construct a few flashes of lightning out of the long rumble of thunder. And it seems to me that in philosophy, you do have a long rumble of thunder, when it comes to art, it's very important to stick to the flashes of lightning. But even then, there are, I mean, I'm speaking now to someone who knows much more about it than I do, but you have a discipline. You have rules of the game. Mm. You have things that you know work and don't work. You are a craftsman. 
so it's not just uh, presumably being struck by a series of flashes of lightning. Um, yeah, because yeah. music has a, has a craft to it as well. As you know, Absolutely. craft yes. as well as the creativity as the art. Yes, absolutely. And, and actually, you can feel. I mean, we've just been listening to and listening to something we've known very well, which is the final movement of Haydn's uh, Opus One Hundred Four, London Symphony. And every time we listen to it, a we want to dance, but b we imagine him suddenly feeling, got it. Got it. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I know he probably felt, but that feeling when, uh, and you must know better, well, you obviously know better than I do, Stephen, but I mean, that feeling of a tune as a revelation, a solution, yeah. something yes. from outside, all of those yes. things, despite the fact you're going to be a craftsperson and you've got to, you know, set out the music in lines and so on. I've, I've sort of slithered away from your question, which is about the relationship between philosophy and art, um, and I think it was a phrase we mentioned, uh, joyful wonder. I think that's what's common to both. Um, yes. Because we, we should be absolutely astonished, A, that we are, B, what kind of creatures we are, and C, the sort of thing we all get up to. I mean, it should be a source and the products of our joint lives. I mean, the book I've just sent off for publication called Prague 22, which um, essentially is about a journey around Prague, which is where two of my grandchildren live in the 22 tram. Mm. But there's a great lot of cliches about magic Prague. But I came back to Stockport full of a, full of the sense of magic Stockport. And the last section mm. is sitting, sitting in the toilet uh, at, in our thing with all the things around me that you see in a toilet. It's a kind of wunderkammer. And if you just unpack, for example, a canister of Glade air freshener, What's in it is just amazing. So, in a way, both philosophy <laughs> and, and, and and poetry are completely given uh, committed to raising the wattage of our consciousness, if you like, to a joyful wonder at what we are, what the world is, and indeed what we achieve together. Yeah, it even was, if it, yeah, it was something you put in an email to me, but I just want to say it here now to get it recorded. You know, the intersection between art and philosophy, two ways of trying to come upon ourselves in a state of joyful astonishment. And he just said joyful wonder. And I thought it was just fantastic description. I want to talk about agency and free will for a minute. Uh, some neuroscientists, starting with their old friend, William Gray Walter, years ago, have looked at changes in the brain that might be associated with making decisions and seeing that you can pick up changes in the brain that occur before the person is actually conscious, or, you know, aware that they've happened, which appear to be related to them making a decision and which they are not aware that they've made that decision sometimes. Yeah. And I think you wanted to say something about that sort of reductionism or whatever it is. Very much so, because first of all, it biographically goes deep in me. The fear that I might not have free will was something that preoccupied me very much as yeah. a teenager, particularly when I was a biochemical materialist, as I described myself. Um, and also behind this is, is, is this question we've touched on. To what extent is science now the last word on questions that were originally addressed by philosophy? And free will is typically a question for philosophy. And there is a, an awful lot of literature that is 
based on the supposition that neuroscience can tell us whether or not uh, we have freedom, that by peering into the brain, we can see whether we genuinely have um, free actions. Now, first of all, there are, our freedom isn't just something of a, of a sort of, of areas of specialness. It is a recitative throughout our life. For example, freedom is expressed in the distance between me walking down the stairs in order to catch a bus, in order to go to London. That's freedom. And the contrast between me falling down the stairs because I've lost consciousness, that's lack of freedom. So you can see freedom is already evident in that rather banal action of walking down the stairs purposively. Now, what Libet did is, and you mentioned Gray, Gray Walter, but the experiments have been most discussed of those of, of Benjamin Libet. He thought he could see evidence of the readiness potential uh, in, in, in the motor cortex uh, being, um, as it were, uh, switched on before subjects were aware of having made a decision to make any particular movement. They were asked to time the decision to make the movement by seeing a clock on a screen. And the movement they had to make was something very simple. They just had to flick their hand. Well, that's, first of all, there are all sorts of methodological problems, which I guess you're familiar with, but are less interested in the philosophical ones. But timing one's own intention to make a move, et cetera, et cetera, all of that is pretty dodgy. But um, the interesting thing is the action that Libet studied in his patients had got nothing like what free will consists of. And if you look at the subjects who get participate in the experiment, take Mrs. Smith. What was she doing there? Well, fortnight before, she'd read in the paper that there's those clever scientists down the road who are doing work on um, the brain. And there's a little boy next door who's actually got quite severe brain damage. She wondered if she was a subject, she might help to bring brain science forward and actually benefit this little lad who's living next door. She rings up, makes a phone call books an appointment. She then, the night before, she sets the alarm so she doesn't um, oversleep and annoy Professor Libet. She also parks up her own child with the um, next door neighbour who's kindly agreed to look after the child for a day. She drives off to the laboratory, has a blazing row in the car park with somebody who's stolen her spot. She then goes down the corridor to Professor Libet's room and there she is greeted with a whole pile of white coats and flashing equipment Despite all this, she is willing to listen to what she has to do. She has all this funny stuff put on her head, and she then does what she's told. So what has she done? Was her action moving her hand basically 300 milliseconds after the retinous potential, or was her action participating in Professor Libet's experiment? And, of course, it was the latter. <laughs> and our, our agency is expressed through incredibly complicated actions. They're not merely physical movements. But they are stitched into our whole lives in a way that is not seen in nature. For example, that action was charged with tensed time, which doesn't exist in the physical world. That's no. the future and so on. So you can see already that Libet or indeed brain science has nothing to tell us about whether we do or don't have free will. Mm. That is so uplifting to hear you say that. Oh, you. You describe, I mean, you're a philosopher of optimism, aren't you? You've got this, you're Schopenhauer's a pessimist. You're the optimist, aren't you? Well, I, 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 plead, I plead guilty to the charge um, because I wrote a great fat book um, in published in 1997 called Enemies of Hope. Many people since have actually said that pessimism in terms of the quality of people's lives is not justified. There's a much better mm. book than mine published since called Factfulness, looking at all the markers of human misery 
and how they have, despite all the awful things that are going on, become less and at an accelerating rate, whether it's premature death, infant death, lack of education, yeah. nutrition, poverty and so on. All of those things are uh, improving. So, yes, guilty as charged there, opt optimism. And it's interesting, it's quite a sort of shameful thing to admit to because there is a sort of feeling that optimism is shallow and pessimism is profound. At this point, I asked Ray to read out one of his early poems called Metasonnet to the Dark Lady. After he's read it, we'll hear the version that I set to music. So this is a Metasonnet to the Dark Lady. This is a sonnet about a sonnet. And the sonnet it is about is Shakespeare's 81st sonnet. And I, I have an epigraph to my own sonnet of two lines from Shakespeare's sonnet 81. And these are the two lines. Or shall I live your epitaph to make? Or you survive when I in earth am rotten? So he's vaguely hoping that the dark lady, who is his mistress, whose nature is being contested by scholars, uh, would live forever as a result of being celebrated in his verse. And so this is perhaps less, less optimistic than what I've just been talking to about um, um, the future of the world. So Metasonnet to the Dark Lady. There's nothing of you lives in these his lines. They did not lift you clear of death in pain. Long since, beneath the air that heard his rhymes, you flowed away, dissolved like him in rain. Your ghost shook off the flesh, its thrilling dark, those evening tones his fluent verse acclaimed. What's saved of you? The tetchy question mark of rival experts squabbling when you're named. Your smooth white neck was lost to red-lebbed lust when night reclaimed the sable from your hair. Dark lady, arid footnotes, learned dust, your absence, wide and sexless as the air, behind the word-webbed nothing of your face, makes these his sonnets, crypts for empty space. Fantastic. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to Brainland podcast number seven, Joyful Astonishment and the Philosophy of Optimism, featuring Raymond Tallis in conversation with Stephen Brown. All the music was written by Stephen Brown. The singer in the meta-sonnet was mezzo-soprano Maria Heseltine, accompanied by the Carinius String Quartet. There was also a very brief extract from a piece called Fear No More, performed by the Orchestra of St Mary's, other musical extracts were from a forthcoming suite which will combine two Shakespearean sonnets with Ray's Metasonnet. Meanwhile, don't forget to check our website, brainlandtheopera.co.uk, to find out the latest about the opera and about other podcasts. Mm-hmm.